Lord God, you do rule over all your creation, and we celebrate that today. We celebrate that you've given us eyes and ears to study and see, and a heart to desire to know what you're doing in the world and in our lives, Lord. Lord, be our teacher today, and may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today is the second message in a series we're doing titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. I'll begin with the same disclaimer that Pastor Scott did last week. I am a Christian. This is an ironic title. But what you may not know is that for most of my life, I was not a Christian. I was definitely not a Christian. And my main reason was because it's unscientific. And that's the topic for today. We're looking at the stumbling blocks to faith and the questions people have about faith. But from the age of five, I was a little scientist. I specifically remember, in fact, it was February 20th to the day, 1962, exactly 43 years ago, I watched on TV what? I watched John Glenn Orb the Earth. And from that moment on, I was determined to be a scientist and more than that, an astronaut and to fly into the heavens and to study space. Only problem was by the time I got into high school, I could tell that NASA was probably not going to pick me to be a scientist because I was too nearsighted. But I was a real nerd and I loved science and I headed off to Caltech. I couldn't fly into space maybe, but I could sure study space through astrophysics and I headed off to Caltech to become an astrophysicist and dedicate my life to working out the grand equations of of the universe. So what happened to me? How did a perfectly good scientist get off to such a great start and then end up being a Christian, of all things, and a pastor, which is the last thing in the world I ever could have imagined being? What happened? How did I get over my objections to the Christian faith? Well, I'm going to pick up that story in just a minute, but... First, I want to dig in a little bit closer to this objection and ask, why is it that people say the problem is it's unscientific? And you know the best place I've found to study what people believe? Bumper art. Take a look at this. (laughs) What does that mean? I mean, why on earth would somebody put that on the back of their car? And I have to admit, I think it's kind of funny. Fish feet. I've never seen a fish with feet. It's kind of funny. But it's making a point. And I think it's pretty obvious that what this person is really saying is that they're making fun of the Christian fish symbol by putting the Darwin in the middle and putting the feet on that fish. And what they're trying to say is something that kind of actually annoys me when I see this too. Because it's like saying, you foolish Christian! How can you possibly believe in God and Jesus and the Bible and all that stuff when science can explain everything. You foolish Christian. They seem to be saying that you can't possibly believe in Christianity and the Bible and science both at the same time. They seem to be saying that the theory of evolution somehow proves that the Bible is wrong. Well, where did that idea come from? The theory of evolution has never bothered me at all. Before I was a Christian, that didn't bother me. I mean, if God chose to create the biomolecular processes of life in such a way that he could use the process of evolution to 
develop species, that's up to him. That's not a scientific problem. That's a, that's a matter of faith. And I see no problem in the story of Genesis. Pick out Genesis 1 and read it. It is amazing how that literature that was written thousands of years before modern science, how accurately it describes what we're observing. For the creation of the heavens and the earth, the water and the land, the, the plants, the sea creatures, reptiles, the land creatures, mammals, finally humankind. And we're not reading a science textbook here. We're reading poetry that is teaching us a deeper truth. The point of Genesis is to teach us not which chemical, biochemical process God used. It's to teach us what our place is in, in creation. It's to teach us our relationship with the creator God and how we got here. And then to underscore the point, in the very next chapter, Genesis 2, we get a second look at creation. And this time the story is different and the events are all in the same order. The events and order, and that's not the point. The point is we're getting a story about a God who is the creator, who created the world and everything in it, who created life, and the unique position of humankind in that life, and the relationship of man and woman to each other and to their creator God. The Bible teaches who God is and who we are in relationship to God. So I conclude that the Bible remains silent on exactly how the underlying principles of evolutionary process may or may not have worked out. Whether Darwin got it right or not, it doesn't really matter. So then why does the debate continue? Where's all the energy coming from that people are putting things like this on the back of their cars? You know what I think? It's not because there's a war between science and faith. It's because people don't want to believe in God. I didn't either. I did not want to believe in that kind of a God. I wanted to believe in my own mental ability to sort things out and to study nature and to make sense out of things using pure reason. But the reason that Darwinism becomes a hot item is because it, it's become a religion of its own. It's crossed the line from being science, which is a theory of evolution, to being a faith-based statement, which is that there's no purpose to the universe and there's no God. It's all just a big accident. Well, that's not science. That is a faith statement. That is a religious statement. And that's why people cling to Darwinism, because it makes them feel better about their faith. It's a worldview. Darwinism would have us believe that life is a freak accident with no purpose in a godless universe and that life just somehow arose out of a smelly, dead swamp of chemicals. There's no scientific evidence for that at all. And it's always been difficult to deny the existence of a creator God. I mean, all you have to do is just look around you at the incredible glory of nature and the universe and heavens and of human life and all life. And the more you study the more glorious it becomes and the harder it becomes to imagine that it was all just a big accident. I think the most fascinating thing about all of, mo all of modern science, all the science of our lifetimes, it's not genetic engineering, it's not the microelectronic revolution and computers. The most fascinating thing to me about 
science of our lifetime is that every discovery is making it harder and harder to believe that it was all just an accident. Just look at what it takes to allow life to arise. Now, I'm going to move aside here. I'm going to do astrobiology 101. (laughs) Bear with me. This will not be on the final. You don't have to take notes. And I promise I'll make it as painless as possible. I'll only take two minutes. All right. Here we go. Astrobiology 101. This is what it takes to create a situation in which life can arise, specifically intelligent life. First of all, you've got to have the right kind of star. In this case, it needs to be a main sequence G2 dwarf star. There aren't that many of them in the galaxy, but the sun happens to be one. Next, the sun has to be the right distance from the galactic center so that everything doesn't die from the radiation from the galactic center. Next, the orbit of the planet has to be exactly the right distance from the sun so it's neither too hot nor too cold. Basically, astrobiology is the same thing as Goldilocks. Next, it has to be just the right thickness, right, not too thick, not too thin, of atmosphere. The Earth has to be just the right size. There has to be liquid water. The the atmosphere has to be oxygen-rich. There needs to be a large moon if the planet is to have a stable axis of rotation and not precess on its axis, creating havoc with the seasons. It also must stabilize the rotation of the planet so that one side is not always constantly facing the sun and burning up while the other side is freezing. Next, there needs to be a molten core in the center of the planet so that you can produce a magnetic field during the rotation that shields the planet from the radiation from the sun so that everything doesn't die from that solar wind. And it helps if there's plate tectonics because otherwise you can't get a carbon cycle going of circulating the carbon out of the crust and back into the atmosphere. Whew. All right, I'll have more now. I've got to stop. That's just the short list. I haven't given you half of it. And I really want to encourage you to come here, Dr. J. Richards, right here in this room in a week and a half on Wednesday night. He's a, a scientific philosopher, and he's written a book on this subject, which is fascinating. Just fascinating. Wednesday night, March 2nd. You won't want to miss it. But that's just the astro part of astrobiology. If you go to take a look at the biology part of astrobiology, it's just as complicated. It's just as hard to explain. And I love the way that Pastor Walter Ray explained it here a few years ago. Remember, he compared it to a Boeing 747. A B747 has about 6 million parts. Now, let's take those 6 million parts and just strew them about a baseball field and then wait and see what happens. Okay, light, let's, have, let's throw in some lightning strikes, uh, earthquakes, fires, floods, you name it, anything you want. Wait a million years. Wait 15 billion years, which is the scientific age of the universe. And common sense tells us that those six million pieces are just never going to configure themselves into an airplane that flies. It's not going to happen. So... Was it all just an accident that life came together and that the earth was just right and that that life arose under these conditions? Scientists have calculated that the odds against that from astrobiology is 100 billion to 1. That that could ever happen in the Milky Way galaxy. We have a name for that kind of accident. We call it a miracle. (laughs) But wait, I'm really talking foolishness. I know. 
I'm really talking foolishness because that argument never convinced me. In my scientific mind, that argument never convinced me. No one ever gets convinced by argument of the God of the Bible. It's foolishness. I insisted on believing in my own capability to figure things out and to use science. And I insisted on sticking to that belief no matter what. I refused to believe in the kind of a God who would die on a cross. Yuck. I didn't want to believe in that. A God of flesh and guts? No, I could believe in a God who was my concept of nature, God with a capital N. By the way, that's always the kind of God that people invent on their own through philosophy. They never invent the kind of God that we read about in the Bible. And they never invent Jesus. That's something that has to come from a wholly other source. That is not common sense. But that was my worldview. And I'm going to resume this story and try to explain how this agnostic scientist became a believer. Well, it began with a friend who gave me a book to read, wanted to discuss it with me, and I had already been, always been a philosopher, and so I loved this kind of thing. And I said, sure, I'll read that book with you. And it didn't bother me that I knew my friend was a Christian. I figured, hey, maybe he'll learn something from me. <laughs> and the book really bothered me. I had, the book bothered me. It didn't convert me or anything like that, but it really bothered me because I couldn't figure out how somebody that smart and that rational could be a Christian. And it was written by this guy I'd never heard of, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and the title of the book was Mere Christianity. Well, I was hooked on Lewis. I started reading everything I could get my hands on by Lewis. Started taking a class in apologetics at the local church. My wife wanted to start attending church, so we started doing that. And then I made the worst mistake of all. I started reading the Bible, especially the Gospels. And then I was struck by the simple historicity of the Gospels and the Bible. I dug into the historical evidence for all the Bible events. And the more and more I studied the harder and harder it got for me to refute the Christian faith. It was getting to the point where the only sensible thing was to believe it because there was no better answer. And I knew the worldview I had come from. I knew what lay behind me. And I didn't want, but I felt like I had reached the edge of a cliff and I didn't know what was ahead. But I knew that I couldn't go back to that previous worldview. And then something else happened. There was also an emotional component to this journey. Because I loved my wife. I loved her so much that I believed that our love was, this, was the center of being for me. It was my reason for living. And I couldn't imagine any deeper love. And then I found out I was wrong about that too. Because she got cancer. And I can't explain it. But I became aware of a deeper love than anything I had imagined. And I just knew that that love was real, that it was the meaning of the universe, and it was just as real as physics. And I couldn't explain that. I have only found one thing in my life that can hold it all together, that can hold together a universe which is measurable and physical and can be studied by science 
and it is rational, and at the same time, that love is the meaning of the universe. Buddhism can't explain that. Philosophy can't explain that. The only thing I've ever found that can explain that is Jesus Christ. And so I was stuck because I didn't want to believe in him. I did not want to believe in a God who would be personal. I did not want to believe in that kind of a God, but I had no choice. It was the only answer that fit. And so I said yes to Jesus. And it was like taking my head off and screwing it back on again. Probably the hardest thing I've ever done. I had to throw my whole worldview out the window. I was 35 years old. And I know just to finish that story, some of you know that my wife did die, and that was several, 13 years ago. And uh, I am remarried now, and many of you have met Linda. Linda is also widowed, and that's one of the things that brought us together. Well, what I discovered is that the foolishness of the cross was wiser than my wisdom. My wisdom was based in science, and science is basically just measuring things. Science is not much different than a measuring tape. In order to to measure something, you've got to be able to know the endpoints, and you've got to be able to calibrate your measurement by something that you can be outside of to observe. And you're never going to be able to get outside of God. You're never going to be able to get outside of God's creation So you're never going to totally comprehend it, and you're never going to totally comprehend God. If we are ever going to understand the purpose of creation, and if we're ever going to know who God is, it's not going to happen through science. I mean, that in itself would be an unscientific idea. That can only happen if God chooses to reveal himself to us from outside of science, and that's exactly what he has chosen to do. But that's why the cross is such a stumbling block. It means we're not capable of figuring everything out on our own. It means we're not the center of wisdom. We have to submit our minds to God's wisdom, even when it feels foolish. But the thing about this new foolishness that we find is that everything makes more sense afterwards. Science makes so much more sense to me now. Now when I look at the beauty of the heavens or a beautiful mountain valley or look through a telescope or look through a microscope, I can say, my God, my God, the glory of it. And see purpose in it. We can see the glory of God in nature, but to know God and to know his love, he has to show himself to us in person. This is the foolish foolish message that is wiser than the wisdom of the world. Jesus Christ hung on a cross, was died, and was resurrected for you and me. And that's a wisdom that is deeper than the wisdom of the world. The deep, deep wisdom of the world and the deep knowledge of science is based on the deeper love of Jesus. Amen. Lord God, we praise you that you do reveal yourself through all nature, that your glory shines all around us, that you've given us eyes to look and see it and hearts to rejoice in the beauty of it. Now, Lord God, let our minds also be tuned 
to the deeper wisdom and the deep love of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.